Good morning. It is uh, my joy and honor as your pastor to, um, to be your pastor and to preach the word of Christ to you today. Um, this is quite a different experience than the last time I preached. It was, I believe, Memorial Day weekend, and it was cold and raining. And so everyone was right here, and everyone had blankets on. So that was that was uh, that's so quite a different experience today. It's kind of hot and humid out here. So I'm just going to pray now for the Lord to give us uh, to give us help as we look at this text today. Father God, we uh, we call to you now that you would incline our hearts, that you would incline our spirits to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Give us give us light in your ways, Lord. Open our eyes to see the wondrous truths in your scriptures today. Would you unite our hearts, God, to fear your name, to see you rightly, God, and worship you? And would you satisfy our hearts today? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 26. If you haven't found that yet, please go ahead and find that in your Bibles. And as you're finding that, I just uh, want to explain something that happened to me last weekend at the 4th of July festival that I was at. Uh, we were walking around, there was lots of booths, and we made our way to this one particular booth that had an artist there that was creating corn husk dolls. And she had a demonstration there of a corn husk doll that looked immaculate, looked beautiful, it looked amazing. And I was like, wow, that looks cool. What's going on here? And she's like, oh, this is where you make the corn husk doll. I was, Whoa, I don't, I don't know that I can make something that looks like that. And so let alone, you know, my children <laughs> making that. And so we step up there and she begins to show us how to make this doll. And I look at her resources there and I see that all she has are some yarn, some string and wet corn husks. How are you going to make a doll that looks like that out of this? And I, I was perplexed that how she was going to do that. But as we sat down there, she began to show us. She began to teach us. And honestly, it was one of the most kind uh, uh, women that I have ever met and one of the best teachers. She was engaging my children. She was engaging me in conversation. She was so tender and so caring. And I was fumbling through how to make this doll with my kids and desperately trying to help. I was receiving help from Lauren, from my, uh, from my mom, and of course from the teacher. Um, but eventually, about 20 minutes later, we had three corn husk dolls. They didn't quite look exactly like what she had given in her model, but they were, you know, look, it looked a lot better than what I was imagining would happen. And I'm giving us this illustration today because much of what we're going to learn in our text relates to this illustration. One being that we have no clue uh, how this is going to end. We, as the disciples, we're going to learn today, we are so spiritually blind and we can't see the end product and we get lost along the way. But what is also so encouraging about this text today is Jesus' love and compassion for us. Jesus loves to heal the spiritually blind. It's not just that he can do it, but he loves to do it. He loves to lead and heal the spiritually blind. 
We all lack understanding in some way. We're all blind in some way. Some of, some of you here may be hearing the gospel for the first time and you're, you're blind to know who you really are and what Christ has to offer you. Some of you have been disciples for years, but you're still blind. There might be an issue or a concern in your life that you're blind of, you don't see. And if you're like me, and I would conclude probably most of you, we, we are blind and we don't know we're blind. <laughs> we don't know how desperate we are for understanding and how desperate we are for instruction. But as I mentioned, it is so encouraging to me that Jesus loves to heal the spiritually blind. And that is going to be our main point of our text today, is that Jesus loves to heal the spiritually blind. And we're going to ask a question upon this text to get to that point. That question is, how can we be healed from our spiritual blindness? How can we be healed from our spiritual blindness? And we're going to answer that in four sections as the text is divided up. First, we are going to listen to Jesus. Then we're going to receive Jesus. We're going to respond to Jesus and we're going to follow Jesus. This is the way that we as, spiritual, as spiritually blind can look upon Jesus and be healed by him. And this is a very interesting text because it is a transition point from, uh, from in, the, in the gospel. Some people divide Mark up into three parts. Some divide it into two. Regardless of how you divide it up, this is a transition point. And Mark does not make a one-verse transition, a two-verse transition, a three-verse transition. But in fact, all 26 verses that we're going to discuss today is a transition He's reminding us of what has taken place and he's alluding to the things that are about to happen. And what has taken place is he's been trying with all of the resources that he has, Jesus has been, to explain to the Pharisees, the crowds, his disciples, who he is. It's been about his identity. This is who I am. He's been revealing that to that group of people. And as we find in this passage today, now he's setting the stage to start honing in his instruction to just his disciples. He's honing in his instruction and he's not only explaining now who he is, but he's going to start explaining his purpose for coming to the earth. And so we have this transition point here between the two. And this text today, this transition is meant to expose our spiritual blindness, and the disciples' spiritual blindness in preparation for the instruction that's coming ahead. And Jesus loves to do this. And so let's first look at verse 1 through 10. It's quite a large section of text today, so usually I would read the passage and then explain it. Um, this is one of the longer sections. I'm going to go ahead and uh, move into the explanation of that, but you have it there in your Bibles. Please uh, read along with me or, you know, check and make sure I'm not going off the rails or something like that. Uh, you have your Bible, so that's, that's our authority here. Um, but as, as we begin, this first section, 1 through 8, is about listening to Jesus. And the crowd that is listening to Jesus is a mixed crowd. It's very clear in the text by the position, the geographical position and the place where Mark places this in the text, that this is a mixed crowd of both Gentiles and Jews. And one can't help but relate this 
previous passage where Jesus explained that the Gentiles or the dogs were going to come to the table. And in this passage today, they literally come to Jesus and are fed. It's not a parable, but they, the Gentiles literally come to Jesus and are fed. And Mark is alluding to the future full reign of God where people from every tribe and every nation gather to listen to Jesus and are satisfied by him. That is the illusion that Mark is pressing on us today. And this mixed crowd must have really wanted to hear Jesus. Because Jesus explains to us they had been there for three days. They had been listening to Jesus teach for three days. Not only had they been there for three days, but they came from a far way and they didn't have any bread. They didn't have any food, which means that they were so enthroned, they were so captured by what Jesus was saying and doing that they, it didn't dawn on them like, oh, we, we need to send someone to get some bread. We're not going to have any food. They were so, in, they were so uh, focused on what Jesus was saying that they were willing to be there for three days to hear him teach. And regardless of their proper understanding of who Jesus was, we know from our journey in Mark thus far, and even from some of what we'll talk about today, they misunderstood who Jesus was. But despite their misunderstanding, it is commendable that they were there willing to listen to Jesus this long for three days. And after three days of, Je uh, three days of teaching, Jesus says, I have compassion. I have compassion. His disposition is gracious toward them. When Jesus sees their need and he sees your need, he is always gracious. He is always has a compassionate disposition to you. I look at this text and I fill in the blank. I have blank. I mean, even it's kind of penetrating. It's, it's, it's convicting even as a pastor and a preacher. Jesus has preached basically for three days. He has preached for three days and they don't have any bread. Like, I mean, I would be frustrated. Like, hey, I spent all this time preparing to feed you on God's word. And like you didn't even prepare, like you didn't call Chick-fil-A or something like you. There was no there's no preparation here for you. I, like I have frustration. That's what I probably would say. I have annoyance. Jesus says, I have compassion. It's the first thing he says. It's amazing to us. And we can think about areas in our own lives where people are annoying to us or frustrating to us. And we look at Jesus' example where he is so loving and so compassionate. He says, I have compassion. Jesus sees their need and meets it. But his compassion is not only toward this crowd. His compassion is also toward his disciples. Jesus is inviting them into the process of this miracle. And he's even inviting them into his emotional life when he says, I have compassion. He's inviting them into this process. And if you read Mark and the other Gospels, it is so encouraging to me how much Jesus uses these teaching moments. It's not like, oh, here's this one special time that I'm going to teach you and that you're going to learn. But he uses the moments that are presented to him to teach them about 
who he is and his purpose. And here he is teaching the disciples. He is inviting them into what's happening here. He even asked them to inventory how much bread they have. Now, let's be real here. Do you think Jesus needed the report of the inventory of how much bread they had? No, Jesus did not need to know that. He told them that because he wanted them to go out to the crowd and touch the bread and touch the fish. He wanted them to be involved in the process. Jesus is using every opportunity to teach them about himself. And the number seven here that he feeds them with is, uh, represents completeness of what Jesus is offering. Even in his life and his ministry, Jesus' life and his ministry seem meager. He comes from a meager beginning. He has no government support. He has no army behind him. But yet we know because of we are on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, that he is going to satisfy, even though he has this meager beginning, as, as they didn't have that many loaves, Jesus is going to come and he is going to satisfy them. He, Jesus, will satisfy the whole world with his teaching, with his life, with his death, with his resurrection. And I just have to ask myself and ask you, when was the last time that you had this type of desire to learn from Jesus? And I'm not talking about a three-hour Bible study every morning. I'm just saying, when was the last time you had this type of attitude? Where it was almost as if nothing else existed and you were ready and eager and willing and humble to listen to Jesus. Whatever their present state of mind is, we can be encouraged that they wanted to hear from Jesus. And I just want to ask, what, what will you do this week to listen to Jesus? Yes, we do need to listen to Jesus. And when he speaks and acts, we also need to receive him on his terms. Let's look at verse 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. So here Jesus returns to Jewish territory. He leaves where there was possibly a mixed crowd. He turns to the Galilean area. And immediately when he lands on shore, the Pharisees approach him. And the Pharisees are not here to listen to Jesus. They are here to test Jesus. They are not even here to ask for a proof. It's not, it's not a spirit of curiosity that brings them to this place. It's a spirit of of, of, of malice. They want to test him. They want to catch him. They want to trap him. Why is that? They're asking him to prove his trustworthiness. They're asking him to prove his credentials, to prove who he says he is. They're asking, from a, they're asking for a sign from heaven. And we need to know that in Mark's gospel, yes, yes, it's true. Yes, it's true that we can look back and say, well, He's done a lot of miracles. He's fed a lot of people. Those are signs of who he is. And Jesus even makes that point in the next section. But what the sign that they are asking for is a very specific type of sign. Because remember, even the Pharisees saw the signs and they thought the power to do the signs were, was from Satan. 
So it's not, it's not just miracles. What the sign they are asking for and the, the type of sign in Mark's gospel is a sign from heaven. It's a prophecy and an execution of some uh, apocalyptic nature where God comes in and crushes his enemies and wins the day and brings the Jewish people to their triumphant uh, throne. You know, he, he comes in and saves the day. They're waiting for that type of deliverance. Think about what happened in Egypt. That type of deliverance. They're saying, hey, give us a sign that you are going to do that. Because we, we don't really think you can. We don't really think you're that type of deliverer. So give us a sign that you can do that. They were not willing to listen to Jesus for three days. They immediately approach him and they want an answer. Prove your identity. Prove your authority. Prove to us that you are the one to come deliver us and crush our enemies. Prove to us your authority based on our standards. So we, we need to understand what's happening here. They have a specific idea of what this Messiah will be and the type of kingdom that will come. It's their desire and their ambition that is informing their interpretation of the scriptures and their interpretation of Jesus. They want him to conform to their standards. They want a God in their own image. They want a God who is going to feed their own desires. They're not ready to receive Jesus as he is. They're still putting all these qualifiers on it. Well, you've got to meet this qualifier. If, if you do this, Jesus, then I'll believe you. Then I'll have faith. Show me some proof, Jesus. And this deep sigh is an expression from Jesus of anger and grief. He's grieved over their hardness of heart and of their rejection of him. He appears here to be exasperated with the continual unbelief that is set against the revelation of God and his grace. We again can compare the state here of Jesus with his when he looked on the crowd, he had compassion. Again, they didn't understand completely, but they were there. He looks on the Pharisees and he sighs with grief. Jesus rejects submitting to the Pharisees. He is not willing to play their game. That's why there's not a long conversation here. It would, it, would gain, it would gain nothing. That's why it ends so quickly, and he leaves. It even says in the text, very abruptly, Jesus left them. This is intentional. If they're not willing to receive him based on his words and his works with some kind of curiosity or interest in him, then they have missed their opportunity. This should recall the shaking of dust off that we learned in chapter 6, where the, the gospel, the, the good news of the kingdom was presented, but it was rejected, and he instructed his disciples to shake the dust off their feet. Jesus is literally here doing that. He's saying, oh, you're, not, you're rejecting me? So I, I'm, 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 I'm leaving. I'm, I'm not submitting to your game. He is also, again, reminding us here that his kingdom is not based on culture, ethnicity, or geographical boundaries, but it's based on the willingness to receive Jesus, even if we are somewhat blind in our understanding. That's what the kingdom is based on. It's based on our willingness to receive Jesus. 
Not, not our own standards over here. And so we have to ask ourselves, in what ways in your life have you put standards or uh, parameters around God's will for your life? In what ways have you formed Jesus and his will into your liking, informed by your culture or informed by your family or informed by your desires or informed by your ambition? Or have you come to Jesus ready to listen to him and receive him for who he says he is and how he's directing you to live your life? Yes, we need to be willing to listen to Jesus and receive Jesus on his terms. And we need to be ready to respond to Jesus in faith. Let's look at verse 14 through 21. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with him. They only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have your eyes, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, and how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This short interaction with the Pharisees possibly led to a quick departure by the disciples, which might allude to their lack of bread. But there's still a lot in this text that should baffle us. One is, hey, didn't they just get seven loaves left over a few moments ago? You mean they didn't like stuff those in their backpacks or something? Like, how long has this been? They didn't have that bread. And what is even more ridiculous is they have the bread maker in the boat with them. I mean, this guy has fed 5,000 and he has fed 4,000 and they're still clueless. They still just think he's a guy. Like they, they're, not, they're not seeing him as the one who satisfies. And so this is kind of like this really ridiculous nature here. They're holding a piece of bread, wondering how they're going to have enough when the bread maker is there in the boat. Almost in every instance of the miracles, the two miracles, and the three boat adventures. We're on the third boat adventure now. Almost in every miracle and in every adventure, the disciples are so concerned about their material state that they miss the significance of what's happening. They're so concerned about what's going on in the material world that they miss what's happening, and the same is true here. They totally miss it. And the leaven here that Jesus warns of is li- Jesus is linking, uh, he, he is linking his instruction here to the bread in the boat and to the feast that has just happened. It's not by coincidence he uses leaven here and that Mark places this here. It's important for us to know, though, that even this warning, this is a short warning here, but this was likely extended dialogues he had with his disciples, warning them of the leaven of unbelief the leaven of lack of faith. That's what he was warning them of. And so this, this, this was, Jesus specifically had this conversation here. Mark specifically put this here to clue us in and and, and connect all the dots here. 
and his warning against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herod and Herod, we should note that th- this is primarily not a warning against specific people. Yes, Herod was in opposition to Jesus, and we can learn from Luke's gospel that he did demand a sign. But the root of what's happening here is both of them had lack of faith. That's the point that Jesus is making here is don't give in to the leaven. Don't give in to that lack of faith, that type of uh, attitude is going to multiply and it's going to grow. And if you remember, leaven is an enzyme used in bread and in the scriptures, it symbolized exponential growth and influence. And so here Jesus is warning them, don't give in to that type of attitude. Don't give in to the lack of faith. That type of faith, that type of lack of faith has a multiplying effect. And what do the disciples do? Jesus gives this warning and it's like they didn't even hear him. They keep fumbling around with this loaf of bread on the boat like who's going to eat it? And they're arguing and bickering. And it's like, did you even hear what he said? It's like they're completely clueless to the words of Jesus. Completely clueless. Jesus is continuing to expose their spiritual blind eyes. And here he is exposing their deaf ears to hear his words. Then Jesus goes on this list of questions here. And I, I love I, I love Jesus attitude. I love I love that I can say the main point of this message is that Jesus loves to heal the spiritually blind. And how that relates to this is when you read this list of questions, I naturally read this list of questions and I'm thinking he's coming condemning. Hey, remember this. Remember this. Are you not getting it, fool? Like that's kind of would be my attitude, my fleshly attitude. But upon studying of this text, that's not Jesus' attitude. Jesus' attitude is he's slowly trying to recall. He's slowly trying to jog their memory of the miracles that have taken place. He's slowly trying to jog their memory of the teachings that he has given. He he loves to heal the spiritually blind, and he is slowly trying to help them get get the message. And he ends this by saying there were 12 loaves, in the first miracle, seven in the second. And this should remind us that throughout the scriptures, God likes to use the word 12, mostly related to his people, his chosen people. And seven is, uh, it reminds us, it's, always, it's, it's often referenced as completion, as perfection. So he's trying to say what, I, what happened there was complete. It was finished. I am going to satisfy. And what is so even hilarious about this text is if you read closely, some of you that are pay attention to detail, if you read closely in verse 14 and verse 16, in verse 14, they have no bread. There's no bread. If you just stop right there, there's no bread. And the second part of verse 14, it's like, oh, all of a sudden they have a loaf there. And then in verse 16, it's like all of a sudden they don't have any bread again. But Mark, which is it? Do they have a piece of bread in the boat or do they not? And the truth that Mark is trying to proclaim is, yes, there is one loaf in the boat. The loaf is Jesus. The bread is Jesus. That's why he is reminding them of these miracles. He's saying, I will satisfy. I'm the only one that is going to satisfy all the peoples of the earth from every tribe, from every nation. It's me. And he's saying he's helping them to try to, bring, to help them understand And I love how this ends. 
when he asked the question, do you not yet understand? I love this because it's not, you know, there's a difference in tone here and a word. It's not, it's, it's, it's not, do you not understand? Come on, like get a grip. He says, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? Meaning that Jesus is not going to give up on his disciples and he will not give up on you and he will not give up on me. He is looking forward and he says, do you not yet understand? Because he knows that one day they will understand. He knows that one day he is going to spend the rest of his life explaining to him his, his identity, his purpose. He's going to die on a cross. He is going to rise again victoriously. And he is going to be the, be the bread of the world to, to satisfy us. He knows that's going to happen. He's asking them to have faith, even though they, even, even the, even the re, another reason he brings up leaven here is because even though they need to respond in faith, and even though their response might be very small, Jesus can do a lot with that. Jesus can do a lot with that. They only, he, he's only asking for a response. And I just want to encourage you to take your eyes off your present material state and respond in faith. Take time to recall in your life and in the scriptures the way that Jesus has spoken to you and the miraculous things that Jesus has done. Then pray that he will take your little amount of faith and multiply it. Because he wants to. He wants to do that. Yes, we need to listen to Jesus. Yes, we need to receive Jesus on his terms. Yes, we need to respond to Jesus in faith. But the passage does not end there. We, all, we, we are also encouraged to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. We may not fully yet understand, but we need to continue following. Let's read this last little piece here. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he said everything, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Right off the bat, we are encouraged by the faith. The Pharisees didn't have any faith. Jesus was trying to ask the disciples to respond in faith. And immediately right off the bat, we see people with faith bringing this blind man to Jesus. But that's not even the point of the passage here. What is so amazing about what's happening here is this is the only miracle where Jesus does his act progressively and he asks the person if it worked. And there's two things we need to pick up from here. One is how intimate Jesus is entering into this man's world. Yeah, Jesus could stand off in a distance and say, boom, you're healed. He could have done that. But instead, he grabs the man by the hand and leads him out of the village. And you might say, well, yeah, he's doing that not to draw attention to himself. Yes, that's true. But the, 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 the more important point here that Jesus is making, that Mark is making and placing this here, is Jesus's love and compassion to lead the man. Can you think about this man who had been blind? 
and how uh, th- this Jesus would come and leave. Oh, hey, there's a rock there. Hey, step up here. It gave Jesus time to build a relationship with the man so that the man would, would trust him, would believe in him. Jesus was entering into this man's world. And then we read that he places his hands on the man. He spits in the man's eyes. And as weird as that might sound, and then, and then he places his hands on the man again to perform the second part of the miracle. And I, I'm saying all this because Jesus is, Jesus is entering into this man's physical world to enter into this man's mind, to enter into his thoughts, to enter into his heart. He wants this man to experience the, the, the healing that he has to offer. It's very similar to what he's been doing with the disciples. He slowly leads us to open our eyes to see, what, to see who he is. And we also need to note, this not, not only was Jesus entering into this man's world, but this was a progressive nature. He is slowly helping this man see. Jesus, like I said, Jesus could have healed the man just like that, but he takes time to heal the man because he is demonstrating for us and he is demonstrating for his disciples that he will not give up on us, that he is going to slowly help us see. He is there, he is present, and he is going to help us see. Oftentimes we think discipleship is like a fire hose of information and then behavioral change, right? But that's, Jesus is definitively saying something different here. He is building a relationship with this man, and he's asking him to follow him. He's, he's, he's engaging him in this intimate relationship. And I'm going to encourage you to don't, don't give up. Don't give up faith. Continue to follow Jesus. He promises to complete the work that he started. On this side of the resurrection, we don't have to wait three days to be fed. We look on this side of the resurrection back back to the three days that Jesus was in the ground. And he rose again victoriously to feed and satisfy all mankind. That is what we as Christians now celebrate. Yes, we need to listen to Jesus. We need to make ourselves in a posture to listen to him. We need to receive him on his terms, not our own terms. And we should respond to him in faith, even if it is the smallest amount that we can muster up. And we are to follow him because why would I, why would we do all this? One, because we're blind, like we need we need to see. And two, Jesus loves to heal the blind. He loves to heal the spiritually blind, and He loves to heal you. Let's pray and end our time together. Father, thank You for uh, this text. Thank You, God, for Your love, for Your patience. Thank You, God, for uh, being willing to teach us from the Scriptures. Thank You, Lord, for coming to us. Help us, Lord, to receive You. Help us to know uh, your identity. Help us, God, to have faith in you. Help us, God, to follow you. And we just, we are amazed. We are amazed at how much you love us, how much that you are willing to enter into our world and lead us to help us see that you are the bread of life. Would you give us that clarity today, God, as we worship together? Amen.